tetragrammaton. This is the house of Braccio Fortebraccio, who was in, my dates are always bad, let's say 14th century. He was king of his kingdom. This kingdom went all the way to the Adriatic. It was big. He was very powerful. Like all powerful people, they suffer from hubris. I think he took on the Pope once too often. <laughs> Bingo. This is his house, and it's his town. And it's an important town because it's between Perugia and Città di Castello. So, and it sort of changes its allegiances over the centuries, back and forth. How did you end up coming to this town? There's uh, an English connection, and I was told about it. any excuse to come to Italy. <laughs> Especially by then, I had my house. I've, I bought a ruin in 90, was it 91, something like that. It's, uh, and I was invited to the festival, and all I knew is that the previous year, Donald Sutherland had been there. So I thought, okay, it's a class festival. And it was great, it was wonderful. And got to know the people, and particularly Marie Saberna, who was central to the thing. And when I bought this house, there was the um, Ride TV. I decided ours was the perfect place for a ripetatore, because ours is, we've got a bit of a ruin of a castle. I mean, it's, it's the kind of a castle with no upkeep because yeah. it's just falling down. Yeah. But it was it it dominated the valley and controlled the valley. And um, there's a film festival here. And this festival. How, how long has this been going on? Well, it's been now. It's probably twenty. It's twenty-seven years now wow. here in Montoni. Wow. And it, it's just beautiful because there's the the piazza down there yeah. with the great um, the bell tower goes up and there's the clock on it. That's where we used to project. We've now moved up to the flat area by the church on uh, San Francesco, which is technically and probably better for watching movies, but it's not quite as interesting because the square would be packed because there were two taverna bars there competing for business because everybody came, they would sit around, we'd be eating, the children would be playing. I remember it with Munchausen, when we projected there, it was on the side of the building, um, across the square from one of the, the bars. And, and the people in the bar, of course, great film lovers, were busy drinking and talking and not watching the film. And, but their silhouettes were on the wall amongst oh. the film. They were in the film. I thought, this is fucking wonderful. <laughs> it just was great. Amazing. So and it's a beautiful town and to be part of it. Because it's now, look, it's 25 years since I uh, was given the keys of the city. <laughs> and then, uh, I think it's, is it 12 years? I, can't, I became the first and only honorary citizen of this little town, which is one of the great proud moments in my life. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. How much time do you get to spend here? Not much. Mm. That's the thing, like, the, the only thing I don't like about the festival, it's in July. It's a time I don't normally want to come to Italy. <laughs> Spring, autumn, I'm in heaven. But, it's here, and it's been great. I suppose this English connection is good because also people, Colin Firth got the keys to the city, Ray Fiennes has the keys. It's been wonderful to see this collection, Peter Mullen. It's been great to see them all coming. The people, what happens in the festival actually is 
the week of the festivals, you suddenly discover all the stranieri that's living in the hills here. English, German, Dutch. I never see them because I only see the, the local people. And suddenly for the festival, they descend. <laughs> and so suddenly you've got this world of accents and, and, yeah. and languages. It's fantastic. <laughs> I'm so happy you're here. Like this is just <laughs> such a beautiful experience to come to such a great place. It's, it's a beautiful, I mean, it's almost... I keep saying it's almost too Borghese. It's yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. Everything is done beautifully. Great care is taken. And that's, I mean, that's the pride of the citizens. It's wonderful. When you're working on a project, do you see it as a series of interesting moments? Or does there have to be an overall theme or story? No, that's, no, there's no, that's, that's not Italy. Come on. <laughs> Italy is very morbido, fluid. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm asking you in general, though. No. In general. I, in, you think in, in it can do they, they, anything they could do anything? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's it. And what I love about it is there's the ceremonies here in this town. We have a Sacra Spina here, one of the thorns of the crown of thorns that was pressed to Jesus' head. And... I just found out yesterday, reading a book about the city, I thought I'd learn a bit more, yes. is that apparently it's supposed, to, it's supposed to be miraculous. And every year, somewhere around Easter, it, the thorn turns green and the blood liquefies. It's a bit like San Gennaro in yeah. Naples. I didn't know that. But then I know the procession, which is very serious. They come down, there's a reliquary where this, <laughs> it could be a nail. I'm not sure. The, but there it is. And they come down in Renaissance costumes, medieval Renaissance, doesn't matter. And it's serious and it's wonderful. That's what I like. And yet, at the same time, they're incredibly playful. It's a, a seriousness that's taken with a sense of humor. Yeah. And that's the combination did I you, love. Did you grow up with a religious background? Well, I was going to be a missionary. Really? <laughs> no, I was, okay, we were in Minnesota where I was born. We were surrounded by Swedes. It's very interesting because the Swedes, when they made this huge exit from Sweden when times were rough, they ended up in a place, Minnesota, which looks exactly like Sweden, but on the other side of the world almost. Yes. And so it was all these Scandinavians around us. And, and so at that point, we were Lutherans. And then when, when I was 12, we moved to California and became a Presbyterian. <laughs> that just happened to be the local church. And that was it. And I went through college on a Presbyterian scholarship that got me through. So I was very much involved in the church until as we were getting around the college time when my jokes weren't found to be funny anymore. And I thought, what kind of God can you believe in? A ubiquitous, all-powerful God that can't take a joke? Come on, give me a break, folks. And that was kind of my separation from, from serious religion. Is there any too far in humor? Can humor go too far? Can you make a joke about anything? You should, and especially the most sacred things. Yes. You test them. Yes. You find out just how important they are. To me, there is no limit on humor. Unfortunately, we're living at a time where the limitations are getting more and more rigid. People are frightened of humor. They're frightened of interesting or odd or not normal thoughts, especially in universities. It's really frightening in Britain. I don't know what it's like in the States. It was just recently... It was probably a couple of months ago. In some university, a lecturer came, and this lecturer had ideas that shocked the students. The students went into their safe room, held hands for 45 minutes to calm down. Now, 
that's one thing. But what bothered me was the administration of the college said, we want our students in college to feel comfortable. That's the death of universities. Universities are not about comfort. It's about expanding your mind, your knowledge, learning all the other ways of perceiving the world. And the universities are saying, no, we want our students to be comfortable. This is a bad time. Well, haven't every new idea has always been met with th throughout history? Yeah. They've always been shut down. The people have been murdered. The person who said that the, uh, the Earth wasn't the center of the universe <laughs> was, I think, hanged. Good old Galileo, yeah. they'll teach him. It was actually Copernicus oh. who got the idea, yeah. but Galileo took the blame. Yeah. <laughs> he just took on the church, the Italian church. And remember, the, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, was the first uh, great um, multinational organization. They were everywhere. It's extraordinary, there's a book I was reading a story that takes place in Hong Kong in the 19th century, and somebody gets cholera there, and they needed quinine to cure the cholera. Quinine only existed in South America somewhere. And they went to the local bishop, and he got the church to work. And the church had a huge fleet of boats. We were very fast. They zipped down to South America, got the quinine, came back, saved the guy. That's power. I mean, that's... The arms of the church stretched everywhere. And it's, I loved how the Portuguese got to Japan. They, they were in India four years before Columbus left Spain for India the wrong way. And they were there and they moved through the east. And they weren't like the Spanish, they weren't conquistadores. They were businessmen. They were in the business of trading. They were actually trying to put Venice out of business is what they were doing. And they got first to India four years before Columbus left. Europe, and then they made their way to, up to Japan, through China, everything. And the effect was extraordinary, just doing business and not being threatening. Of course, they defended their businesses when the local people, blah, blah, blah. But things like in Japan, Nagasaki was created by the Portuguese. It's originally a Portuguese town. Arigato, which is obrigado, is Portuguese. They taught that word wow. also. Tempura cooking, Portuguese taught the Japanese. Wow. This is what's this is what's interesting about history, how different groups. I mean, Portuguese doesn't get much credit for anything, but because they became in the 20th century, Salazar became a dictator, and the Portuguese became the poor man of Europe with the, one of the last dictators of Europe. So it was like boom, nice play for holidays, but boy, you don't want to. <laughs> in fact, particularly during the time of Louis the Fourteenth of France, as he's building Versailles. They were building bigger things and richer things in Portugal. Portugal was the richest nation in Europe, but it's been forgotten. What era is that? Well, this is all we're talking. They got going in the, the African slave trade in the 15th uh, 15, 15th century. So now we're talking the 16th century wow. and 17th century is where we are. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And he got to the wrong place where for 1492, so really 1488, the, the, uh, the Portuguese made the real India and, and they started trying. Here's a, oh, I'm reading another book called Born in Blackness. It's about slavery from Africa. We're talking African, not Roman slavery or Greek slavery or all the slavery that's gone on through ever since mankind has been wandering the earth. It's a beautiful book. Uh, it's, 
written by a guy whose name I can't remember. He comes from, now the modern term would be a mixed race family. What I love is the old term, mulatto. It's a beautiful word. And, and that's who he is. So he's, he sees both sides of, of the, the black and white battle, if there is a battle going on. And the book is brilliant about how, interesting enough, in, we're talking, when the Dutch, because their empire had grown very quickly, and they had started doing business on uh, transporting Indian cotton. Now, the African chiefs, chiefs, the nobles, the rich, loved it because it was so much lighter and more comfortable than raffia or whatever, they, or animal skins that they were making. And so this became the new thing. So the rich and powerful were, and they were buying their nice Indian cotton with slaves, the people they, they had enslaved. So I wish people would take history serious or at least take it, take it with a sense of humor. Because the more I read, the more bizarre, wondrous, amazing, and horrible it becomes, all of those things. Yeah, none of it necessarily makes sense. If you try to make sense of it, yeah. it only confuses the issue. Yeah. I mean, when I hear people say, you're going to be on the wrong side of history. How the fuck do you know what side of history is going to be in, yeah. in 2030? And it keeps 80? changing. Of course. It keeps changing. <laughs> it's just... It's, it's, I mean, again, it's like when I get caught in some, I'm, I'm, I'm very much against so much of, quote, I call it the modern not thinking. Like the great unwokening is at hand, reappropriate the inappropriate. <laughs> because it's, I'm finding so much of the current thinking that is getting news, I refer to it as neo-Calvinism. Very narrow. It's not about discussing. It's not about arguing. It's about I am right, you are wrong. Yeah, ideology. Ideology, yeah. exactly. Close-minded yeah. yeah. ideologues. Yeah. And they're making so much noise. The press love it because there's the back and forth goes on. But I just find it absurd because when they talk about cultural appropriation, we've been doing, everybody's done, that's what makes the world wonderful. Yes. You know, I mean, they'll go on, they'll say, okay, yeah, the Rolling Stones, people like that, they took black mu music and... And who's the happiest people? The black musicians that nobody knew because now their music is live and they're alive and, and famous again and working. It's what we do. We learn from each other. We steal from each other. If you're doing something that someone else does, it's not because you oh. want to take advantage of them. It's because you love it. You exactly. want to celebrate it always. But that's the word that isn't used, celebration. Yeah. That's what life should be. And it's about learning, being surprised, finding the joy, the humor, that, but that's why I say our most important sense is not our sense of touch, hearing, <laughs> it's our sense of humor. It's how do you get through this absurd world that has been a constant reality of humanity? How do you get through it without humor? I guess the alternative is to get a sword or a gun and start killing all the people that yeah. you Disagree. don't agree with. Yeah. yeah. Is comedy always a reaction to the arrogance of the ruling class? <laughs> I wouldn't limit it just to the working, I mean, to the ruling class. We go for them all. There are no bars for, I mean, I don't like this term about punching down. We don't do it to be cruel. We do it to point the absurdities, the oddness. It's like me being a caricaturist. I've, I've seen things a couple years ago when uh, Venus or Serena or Williams were playing tennis. A guy did this very funny cartoon and he was vilified because he made 
her darker than she made her lips bigger than the, it's what cartoon we what we do we it's take, a caricature we caricature we take things and we extend them and they've got to be believable otherwise we've failed at our job but the grotesque has always been fascinating for me because it is about not treating things in a literal naturalistic way it's taking them and let's Probably what God did, if there is a God, <laughs> remolding. Oh, I don't like that shape. Let's make another one. Uh, it's, it's, it's basically what nature has done from the beginning. When you were doing animation, would you collect images that you liked and then figure out the story? Or would you have a, an idea of a concept and then find images to tell that story? It's actually both. Because mostly it's an idea first. And how do I portray the idea? What do I do? And what can I get cheaply and quickly? <laughs> it's always time and money. It's a, and that's how it starts. But on the way, things will just hit you and go, wow. And then it's not me, I suppose, not trying to make sense of it. It's trying to find a way of, say, what I experienced when an I, a thing hit me, an image. I have never analyzed how I do what I do. Mm -hmm. I've avoided that. I'm not Woody Allen. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know. Yeah. It's a miracle, yeah. is all I know. And I like it is magic. Either way, it's magic. Whether you analyze it or not, yeah, it's know. still magic. Yeah. <laughs> the people who analyze are very good because they use their analysis as a way of finding the humor, the interest, the surprise. I don't want to know how I do it. I'm mm. just happy to be walking along yeah. doing it. <laughs> do you ever consider what the audience reaction will be when you make something, or are you only making it for your own entertainment? No, I'm always thinking of the audience. I just want. I want to be admired. <laughs> As we all, come on, we all do. I mean, that's, that's what I, I think, it's very funny how we grow So the up. takeaway today is that you've been unsuccessful at what you've been doing. Yeah, there's plenty of time where people take it the wrong way, where yes. I've failed miserably. Yeah. It all happens, I'm, but I'm always aware of an audience. I, I want to reach people. I'm not gonna limit the audience to, if I'm working for the studio, they think, okay, there's that group of people. That's the audience. I said, fuck off. That's not. It could be all this. This happened with Time Bandits. They, the studio all turned down the script. They turned down the finished film because it didn't fit into one little box. And, I mean, Mike Penn and I came up, I think it was Mike that came up with this. We wanted to make a film that was intelligent enough for children and exciting enough for adults. <laughs> and that we, we did it. And, the studios were completely dumbfounded because they had passed on the script, they had passed on the finished film, and we ended up only thanks to what you need in your life is a beetle. <laughs> and we had one, George Harrison. And George had saved Monty, Python and, uh, life, Monty Python's life of Brian when the studio pulled out. He came in, he mortgaged his house, and we made the wow. film. Yeah, I know. Wow. That's what's... George That's is commitment. an incredible human being. He yeah. never gets the credit for being yeah. as funny as he is. He's always saying, oh, he's, he's the, the religious one, the spiritual one. No, George was really funny and great. And he, he gave us the money. And then as a result of Life of Brian, the success, which it wasn't supposed to be a success, but it was. <laughs> and it was supposed to be a tax dodge. <laughs> Not really, but, but I think some of our investors thought so. Because Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Elton John, uh, Island Records, you know, on the Chrysalis Records, all were making vast sums of money as pop stars. And at that point in uh, UK, taxes had reached as high as 90%. And they needed some tax relief. Well, we 
we didn't help them in the way they had hoped, but they were all delighted to be part of the fun. And as a result of that connection of George and Python, we created handmade films. And that's how Time Bandits got made. We were actually it's the first original film in handmade films. We also bought a film that had been made called Long Good Friday with Bob Hoskins, wow. brilliant film. But that wasn't sort of handmade or homemade. <laughs> And so Time Bandits was, and, and it was because the studios turned out, and George just kept backing it. And then they found a small distributor called Avco Embassy, which hadn't had a hit in 10 years. And Avco Embassy at least had the, the, the machinery to dis distribute a film. And Time Bandits went out, and it went to number one, and stayed there for five weeks. Wow. And then I suddenly became a holy man to the studios. <laughs> A guy who can make money out of nothing. Yes. And it's nonsense, but it happened. Yes. And again, it's thanks to George Harrison. And I said, it's because I spent so much money buying Beatle records that finally it paid off. <laughs> <laughs> when did you first meet George? Actually, it was when we were promoting Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And Eric Idle and I were out in L.A. Holy and Grail was a big hit, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> so you'd think... Based on that big hit, you get to make another one. Funny. The you, wouldn't you think? You think that wouldn't way. Wouldn't you think? Would, rational like, thinking oh, would lead you to These guys know something we don't know. <laughs> they made a hit. But I was only one of the guys. Once you pull them apart. I see. You know, it's like George Harrison. You know, what is All Things Must Pass? Yeah. That's the biggest selling Beatle album ever. And it was not a Beatle album. It was a George Harrison album. Yeah. So the world is wonderful how it keeps turning on itself, upside down, backwards and forwards. And you either take the ride or don't <laughs> enjoy the ride. But anyway, Eric and I were out in L.A. promoting the film. And we, it was great. We got it. I remember getting in a queue. Is at Westwood at the, the Bruin, I think is the cinema. And we just got joined the queue. It was a very huge, long queue outside as just a couple nobodies. And it was very funny. It yeah. started growing. But anyway, Eric was having dinner with George that night and said, come on. So that was that was it. So in this sense, we started with Holy Grail and just carried on. And it was a great dinner. It was George, Olivia, his wife, Jim Keltner. Now, what was wonderful about Jim Keltner, he went to high school with Carol Cleveland from Monty Python. Wow. Isn't that a weird one? What are the one? odds? What are the odds? <laughs> and that's what he, one of the things I discovered at that dinner. It was just wonderful. Uh, and you like, and that's that kind of thing, that connection or those connections are the surprising things in life. How did you end up in England? I had to get out of America. <laughs> Wait, why? What was well, I became totally disillusioned with the country, the war, the Vietnam War. Yeah. So it's 1968, 1969, what I year? 67, it was. Yeah, I had actually served my time in the National Guard and I had been in New York does the name Harvey Kurtzman mean anything? Okay. Mad Magazine or Mad oh, yeah. Comics does. Yes. Harvey was the creator wow. of Mad Comics. He was, to my generation of cartoonists, Robert Crumb, Gilbert Shelton, he was God. And I graduated, well, actually, when I was in college, me and another group, we took over the arts magazine of the college. And and turned it into a humor magazine, lowered, <laughs> lowered everything. And Harvey was doing at that point a magazine called Help. 
at, they used to do fumetti, which is Italian for puffs of smoke. And actually, like in comics, there's people talking in a little bubble there. But rather than drawings, they were photographs. So it was basically movies without movement. And I became Harvey's assistant editor after college. And so we would do these things, and we had a story would be written, and Harvey would then storyboard it. And then I would go out hiring actors who would work for $15 a day. Yeah, big money. <laughs> and locations. So it was like learning to make movies. Yeah. And it's also where I met John Cleese because he was in New York with a group called uh, the Cambridge Circus, it was called. It was the uh, humor group from uh, Cambridge Circus. They were there on the, the coattails of Beyond the Fringe. Do you remember mm -hmm. Beyond the Fringe? Peter mm -hmm. Cook, Dudley mm -hmm. Moore, uh, Jonathan Miller. Mm -hmm. And that had been a big success in New York. And so they, after university, had ended up coming to New York. And they, I found them in this little place down in the village. And they, they weren't doing very well, but John, as always, stands out from any crowd. <laughs> Short, he's tall, six five. No, I don't think he's that tall. He only pretends to oh, be okay. that tall. He's much. He's probably okay. six two, okay. six three. But he's he consumes a lot of space. Yes. is what John does. Yes. And I got him to be in one of these fumetti, and it it turned out to be another press. I have a life full of prescient moments. This was one. It's a a story about a man who has an affair with his daughter's Barbie doll. He falls in love and, yes, and it, it, works, it works as a sort of a fumetti. You couldn't make a film of it, but, and the prescient part is he's then been married four, four times. All of his wives looked like an American Barbie doll. They were American for the first three. <laughs> All blonde. <laughs> so, so these are the weird things. Yeah. That's why I find life so utterly fascinating. Because yeah. I couldn't have planned any of it. And yeah. I've never had a thought of a career. I just do what interests me. And I've been very lucky to, to survive and, and make a living doing it. Uh, and so that was John. And, and I, the magazine was actually in trouble. It was failing. So I hitchhiked around, I took off for Europe. I hitchhiked around for five months, I think it was. I got, I was down in Morocco, I got to Turkey, and I just loved Europe, I thought. America has just, I, I love Disneyland, yeah. but this is real here yeah. in Europe. Yeah. And each country spoke a different language. They had different culture, they had different food. I was blown away by the, the richness of Europe. And so I came back to the States, because I basically had run out of money I had run out of money in Turkey, and I got back to Paris, and I don't know if Pilot magazine means anything to you. Mm -hmm. It was a very popular humor magazine in Paris, and in it was Asterix and Obelix, uh -huh. comic strip that um, René Goscinny wrote, and he was the editor of the magazine. I got to Paris, and I had met René when he was in New York with Harvey. These connect, it's all about connections somewhere yeah. along the line. I was broke. I said, Rennie, I don't have any money to get back to America. Can you help me out? And he said, here's two pages. Do funny things about snowmen, anything you want. So I'm sitting in this freezing little <laughs> left bank hotel garret room and drawing snowmen while I'm freezing to death. <laughs> and it gave me enough money to get to, back to America, which then the only place I really had to stay was Harvey's attic. So I lived in his attic for a bit and eventually then went back to LA 
and via a friend, Joel Siegel. Do you remember Joel Siegel <laughs> used to be in Good Morning America? He was the critic, the film critic. Oh, yeah. Well, Joel was an old friend, again, coming from College Humor Magazine, because he was doing that for UCLA, and I was doing mine for Occidental, and these weird connections, and he was at that point working in advertising, and it got me a job being a, a writer and... Copywriter? Like, what was the I job I was a copywriter and a designer. All, I did the whole thing. Mm -hmm. For print ads? Yeah, for, well, for... All sorts of guys, print primarily. Do you remember any of the ads you did? There was one for a soup, and I can't, what was the name of the soup? Oh, something soup. Were and they funny or were they serious? They're all funny. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever the soup was, it was, what they were selling was soup that you didn't have to add water to. Yeah. Unlike Heinz and all this. Yeah. And that was a thing. And so I wrote this very silly thing about water addicts who couldn't stop. They wanted to put water in the soup. And, and a guy with sneaking down at night when his wife was asleep, adding water to the soup. And his wife found him. All of this nonsense I was doing. <laughs> can, you, can you make fun of the product that you're actually selling? You're going to do this tap, da tap yeah, dance. Because yeah. you've got to make it humorous without denigrating the product. Yeah. On the other side, the other thing I was supposed to be doing was coming up with ads for Universal Pictures, for films. And I had absolute contempt for the stuff they were doing and the films. And that's kind of where I lost my job because I was, you know, it was like, what was it? Madigan, there was a film called Madigan. And, and I came, my big line was, once he was happy, but now he's mad again. <laughs> I, exactly. <laughs> Did they use that ad? No, of course not. That's they fired terrible. me effectively. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was, it was just ridiculous. I hated it. I at one point it was kind of funny, but once once you're thrust into a situation where you're having to fool people into buying this crap product, yeah. I couldn't do that. Even when I was younger, when I was working my way through college, I was selling encyclopedias at one point, and it was I think it was it was the Britannica. And what, how it worked, they had got some company to come up with a pitch that then all the salesmen would use this pitch. I'm here, I'm in your neighborhood tonight, I'm looking, I'm doing some research on social blah, 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 and to get in the door. It was all this stuff. And some were making real big money. And what they would do, the group I was with were all college students. They'd put you in a car, you'd take, take you out and drop you around different territories, different and then you were left there for an hour, hour and a half, two hours to do your work. And I was impossible because I couldn't, I'd knock on somebody's door and I'd start and I'd look there and there's the family sitting around the table having their dinner. The guy had been working his ass off yeah. for eight, 10 hours and he was home with his family and I was interrupting it. I, I couldn't do this. It was only one house that I actually get past the door and it was two old people who had nothing else in their life. <laughs> and they were, here's a perky young kid at the door, yeah. come on in. And I got to the point where I'd convinced them to buy this huge raft of encyclopedias. And I didn't know how to do the paperwork. <laughs> and I then had to talk my way out of their wow. house. <laughs> and I failed to sell a single book. Wow. <laughs> I think that's again, it's what you do when you're younger, what it leads to later in some strange, it doesn't mean you will go upwards. 
but you learn all the things you don't want to do. Yeah. As I got older, I just knew, well, that door's closed. That's, I've closed those doors. I'm not going. So it narrowed my focus, let's say. I mean, again, working my way through college, I was on the um, assembly line at the Chevrolet plant in Van Nuys, California, on the night shift. Unbearable. Yeah. Also because I wasn't allowed to use anything that involved color recognition. It turns out the test, you know, where you get a circle with dots in it and you can see a number? Yeah. I can't see the number. Wow. And yet my whole life has been working with color. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. So after, after a month and a bit on the night shift, horrible. And I, I finally quit. And I said, that's it. So I've had a lot of terrible jobs, which limits my choice because as a kid, I just wanted everything. I wanted to do everything. Yeah. And you waste your life wanting it all. Yes. And the more you can narrow down to all the things, at least get all the things you don't want to do, now you're left with a choice of two, three maybe, if you're lucky. And only one of those doors is going to open maybe. <laughs> and that's it. Did you ever want to make a full animated feature? No. <laughs> no, I think I backed into animation on, on, on the Python stuff. Was It wasn't my intention. Uh, I was, Do you think was, of yourself as a comedian first? Or, no, or not even that. A comedy writer? No, I think... Creative I, person. A co I can draw some comic, comic images. I don't, I, I don't actually think of myself. I don't know yeah, what I do. I understand. Yeah, I keep learning to make films. I'm still a student. Yes. It's, it's, That's it's why that. they're good. Well, you're kind of similar. <laughs> Same I, thing. You, there's nothing you really do that you can say, I do this. Absolutely not. Yes, I have no idea. And that's what it's about. Yes. And yet... You have a vision of the world or an idea of what the world, or you react to things. And maybe your past has developed your sense of the world. For sure. Which is unique. For sure. And that's what I think it's about. Yeah. We're not so wonderful. We're just a bit unique yeah. <laughs> because nobody did the road that we've traveled. Yeah. And that's true for everybody, by the way, of if course. they chose to do it. But they don't. I, I understand. <laughs> I it, was, it, was, it was like an, I graduated with, from college with no fucking idea of what I wanted to do. Yes. And my friends were all getting jobs in advertising. Doctor, they, they planned their lives out. And off they went. They were making money. And I mean, I, when I got the job at Help Magazine, I was being paid $2 less <laughs> a week than I would have got on the dole. But I was... But you were working. Yeah, <laughs> I was you were in showbiz. Exactly. <laughs> with great people learning and, and that was what was and I, all these friends who had graduated were making big bucks for years and as i got older and more successful they got older and more bored with the trap they had found themselves in yeah that's it <laughs> how do you gauge which ideas are worth pursuing i i i, I don't i'm guessing you have a lot of ideas Less and less with each year as I get older. It's just closing in. It's like, no, I, I pursue the ones that obsess me. Mm. I become the victim. Yeah. I am actually the victim of these ideas. Yeah. And I am completely in, in their thrall. And I can't get out. I mean, I've got a script at the moment. It may, it'll never get made because... Why do you say that? It's a satire of the world we're living in now, and it'll push all the buttons of all the people. I, I've actually subtitled it. It's called Carnival at the End of Days. Anyway, and it, it's fun for all those who enjoy taking offense. That's what I've done, and that's why 
I don't know where I'm going. The studios won't touch it. Yeah. The studios are tiptoeing. Everybody's tiptoeing around the activists, which are a very small group of people, but they're just very good at what they do. Uh-huh. So I've just gone for it. I, I teamed up with a young playwright, 33-year-old guy, because I thought I want to work with somebody younger rather than my generation, just because I know what my attitude to the world is. I want to know his. And, how, and we've done it. And it's very funny. And everybody who I respect, who I've said, I want to see this film. And at the same time, I think deep down, I'm not going to get the money. <laughs> if I could do it for five quid, it would be different, but it costs. Yeah. That's the thing with films. They're expensive things. Yeah. And, and it's not like writing a book. Does it have to be with today's technology? There's no way to hand make that film? I keep trying to see if it's possible. I think maybe I've been lucky for too long working with the real stuff. Yeah. And, but it may come to that. I may yeah. have to get down my little claymation. Yeah. <laughs> I might have to. I don't know. But that's it. I'm, I mean, the last, okay, the Don Quixote film, it only took me 30 years to make. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> but there's, and I think that's worn me out. That's yeah. the point of, that kind of perseverance takes its toll. Have there been any others over the years that you've started that have never yep. reached fruition? There's a wonderful one called The Defective Detective. And I wrote it with Richard Lagravenes, who wrote Fisher King. And we did it after we, the film was, was a success. And it's actually stuck in the bowels of Paramount Pictures. They're sitting on it. And they're not going to do anything with it. But the way studios work is they don't want to a script that they own to go out and be made by somebody else and yeah. possibly be successful. Yeah. So it's just languishing there. And it is making me crazy because I think it's a brilliant script. And I, not just because we were involved, it is a good tale. I mean, I think, I think at least I can tell what a good story is. Yeah. <laughs> That's all. Let's use that. That script yeah. as an example. If you were able to make it, how different would the finished film be than the script? It becomes a living thing is what happens. The, the script is a seed. You stick it in the ground and you start. They're all, I can say every film I've made is, in a sense, it's told the tale that I wanted to tell, but the, the tale was told in a different way. Yeah. We get to the, say, the, the magical city at the end of it, but the getting there is where. And you're surprised along the way. Well, that's what makes it interesting because films are hard work. And if I spent a lot of time writing it, uh, co-writing it. I don't write on my own, co-write. I'm just an extension of somebody else's mm-hmm. will. But if I spend a lot of time, I'm almost trapped in that vision. And the minute you start bringing designers in, actors in, it starts shifting because I want their input. I'm not the kind of director says, this is mine, you do what I want. I'm completely opposite of that. I just, it's, the, it's the collaboration that makes it exciting. And you start getting lost occasionally as you're going through the forest of ideas. But I know where I'm heading in the long term. And I'll take little detours. So it's, it is a different film than it would have been if I just stayed the course and yeah. doing what I want. But it's much more alive. When you cast someone, does that automatically change everything? Here's the question. Would Brazil be different if it was Tom Cruise rather than Jonathan Price? Different movie. Correct. And that's what happened. Different movie. Yeah, and that's always that. It's the actors are so crucial. And I spend, 
I, I don't think I direct actors. I think I hire the, the, the one that's most interesting. That'll, it was like Adam Driver was not my first choice for the Don Quixote movie. And I met him and I thought, every, we talked about it. He intrigued me. He didn't look like a movie star, which was yeah. really important yeah. to me. He yeah. looked interestingly. And he had, when 9-11 occurred, he had gone and joined the Marines to fight for his country. Wow. That is completely quixotic. Yes. And I thought, this guy's interesting. He thinks differently. He behaves differently. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And I just... We had, we had lunch at a pub somewhere in London. By the end of it, I said, there's nobody else who could do this film, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And it wasn't originally Jonathan Price. It was Mike Palin who wow. was playing it. Yeah. That'd be a whole entirely different movie. Completely. But yeah. Mike eventually, because I was involved in this producer who didn't produce the film, and Mike got tired of waiting, pissing around. And Jonathan, who you know has been a very close friend since Brazil, he was pestering me constantly to play Coyote. And I said, you're not... I was always ducking Jonathan. <laughs> and finally, he's Mike, incredible in it. Of course he is. He's incredible. <laughs> but I couldn't see it. Yeah. That was what it was about. Yeah. And when he turned 70, I said, okay, now he's the right age. <laughs> I don't have to spend money on bush, bushy eyebrows. and like, <laughs> yeah. I've saved money. And Jonathan is absolutely breathtaking. Yeah. There's no question about it. Unbelievable. I don't know. It's that weird thing. It was partly because we'd become too close. I knew too much about Jonathan. Yeah. And that's always a danger. You don't want to know everything about an actor. Yes. They have to have secrets. Yeah, the, mis the mysterious. Yeah. yeah. Because once he got it, he just went wild. He was so excited. Yeah. And at you every could moment. See it. You could see yeah. his enthusiasm. It, totally. It jumps off the screen. And here's what's funny, because basically... Um, Adam Driver is supposed to be the main character yeah. in the piece. He's the uh, who he creates the situation. Yes. Holding. And so, but we started shooting, and the order of shooting was not the order of the script. And the because of locations, all it ended up with Jonathan's scenes were first before Adam's big scenes, and Jonathan was so spectacular. I looked at Adam. And I said, look, I looked at his face. And he said what the fuck, this is supposed to be my film, and this guy's walking with, away with the whole thing. <laughs> and in the end, the balance was yeah, yeah, brilliant, yeah. absolutely brilliant. It's a funny duo, because they don't look like they belong together. They, <laughs> they look like for, they're from two different worlds. <laughs> I, I suppose, one's in America. They are, that's, that's really funny you say that, because to me, they're only in, and the, they've worked so, well, I think that's, that's what intrigues me. What you've just said intrigues because what you've seen is different than what I yeah. saw. What I saw is Price seems like he's in one movie and Driver seems like he's in a more modern movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's just different. Yeah. But that juxtaposition makes it feel it's like really, I've not what, seen a movie like this before, <laughs> which is great. I love that feeling. It's, it's also the idea that Adam is the one that created this monster. It's his Frankenstein monster yeah. is who he's got there. Yeah. Because the point of the film for me, one of the key points was the dangers of filmmaking. Yeah. What they do to people. Yes. Actresses. Uh, every, yes. And it's like, and here's a little local cobbler who gets dragged into play Don Quixote. And he becomes Don Quixote. And there was more stuff that is in the film about him traveling around to local fairs, always acting the role of. So that wagon that you see where yes. it's in is always introduction for him then be, turning up at a fair, being Don Quixote. Yeah. There's a man in this town, his name is Walter. He's quite wonderfully, wonderfully eccentric, passionate 
guy. He, at all the processions, all the, the key ceremonies, he plays Braccio Fortebraccio, the man who created this town. Yes. And he is it. He lives yeah. every moment as this character. And that was a strange, I think it may have been part of the thinking in my head to see a real person in this real world, he's really living in another century. Yes. And that's it. Yes. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And had you not seen him, maybe that character wouldn't be that character. But again, that's yeah. it. Yeah. It's the things you bump into along the way and it's like, oh, I could use that. Or that's an interesting, or triggers. I don't know. That's why I don't want to know how it's done. I don't want to know how the trigger occurs. Yes. I just want to be surprised when yes, it happens. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I bet it happens sometimes when we don't even know what the trigger is. You know, like it's something yeah. that we saw 30 years ago yeah. is in our subconscious and that impacts a choice we make. We don't know why. We never know why. It's only just in this new script. I just, there was something that I solved a problem. It was this, I've got some, our main character and, and a Guatemalan family trying to get across the U.S. border. Okay, so they, they reached the Great Wall. And that's what it was in the script. And then a friend of mine who's a very brilliant writer and, and successful, he had some problems with certain things and, and a character that was a result of Trump's 2016 campaign. Trump used to always refer to Mexicans, you know, they're, uh, well, they're criminals, they're drug dealers, they're rapists. So I've created a guy who is taking credit for being the rapist. Anyway, <laughs> and, and, and my friend, the writer, was bothered by this. So I went back and tried to find, not a preamble, but at least getting Trump speaking so that we could use this, his thing about rapists, Mexican rapists. And the scene was the Great Wall, but somewhere around the wall were the police waiting to on spot the, uh, the south of the border folk. And I've now put them behind a bit of the wall, but the bit of the wall is only 100 feet long. <laughs> the rest was never built. So there's this, in the middle of the desert, is this huge fucking wall only 100 feet wide with the cop car hiding behind it. And they're watching on their television uh, in their cop car, they're watching Trump's great, greatest moments. <laughs> and so we get the whole speech, Trump's speech. But what is so funny about this piece of wall just isolated on its own. Yeah, they can funny. just walk around anywhere. But you can't, you can't. Yeah. And, that's, and, this, and again, this writer friend who yeah. I've solved his problem about the rapist business, he was just blown away by it. And here's why it's that way. Because years ago, there was a lady here introduced. She's, I, don't, I think she's still here. She uh, runs a charity in Israel and the West Bank in Palestine. And it's bringing Israeli teenagers and Palestinian teenagers together to realize they are not enemies. They are very common. So much of their lives are common. And I, it's called Windows for Peace. And I think, fuck, this is good. This woman doing something, not talking about how you're doing it. So I was in Israel. I was doing a theater show outside of in Jaffa. Anyway, and Rudy, her name is Rudy, and, I, and she said, you want to come into Palestine with me? Want to take a ride in the West Bank? I said, you got it. <laughs> so 
First thing is we're in, in Jerusalem and East, there's East Jerusalem and there's the wall. It comes up a road. There's a road that's crossing this way. Okay, Up goes the wall in all its monumental horror. And then it stops because there is now a lovely villa here with a wonderful garden. It stops. But then here is a cross street going there. The wall is there. The next bit is a nunnery, big garden. So this one isolated bit of wall and what was intriguing was this the low wall around the villa where all these Palestinian women coming to shop, shopping in, in Jerusalem, and they have to tightrope this wall to get past the wall. And I, I dragged once the, the Israeli teenagers and said, come on, we're going to the West Bank, kids. And you climbed the wall. <laughs> we tightroped across. I showed them, this is what it's like over here, folks. Yeah. And the, the great growth industries were Palestinian taxis, because they were bringing all the ladies. So there was almost a traffic jam of taxis. Because the taxis are the only ones that can go on the beautiful roads yeah. on the West Bank. Yeah. It's you know, the settlers and the taxi drivers. And so that was a growth industry on the West Bank. The other one was donkeys and carts. Because we were in a taxi going along and coming to a big bend. And oncoming Palestinian taxis were flashing their lights signal something, which means there at that moment there's an army checkpoint around the corner. So our taxi driver just goes right turn, boom, up a dirt road through an olive grove over this little Palestinian village and down the other side around the checkpoint. And that's why the other growth industry is donkeys and carts for the dirt roads. Unbelievable. I'm so excited to have been there to see yeah. it. And here's, I ended up at a, a town called Tulkaram, which is was originally a refugee camp, which is now a city. And it was just a refugee camp, but it's grown over the years. And what are the big posters on the walls, the big billboards are these young kids. They were suicide bombers, pop stars, like pop stars up there. And they're the martyrs, the kids. So that's the future for the young kids in Tulkaram, be a martyr. Wow. Not a good thing. Wow. And, and we end up, eventually with the, the Palestinian side of the, the charity with the guy who runs it. We're sitting on a nice concrete floor, his old mother. His, we were just having tea. And all he talked about was despair. That's all. And so we went through it. And really, these are good people. And, and next, from after our tea on the concrete floor in this shabby little place, I was driven 45 minutes back to Israel to the British ambassador's house where I dined with him and his wife and the servants bringing all the food. And I said, listen, this is what I've just seen and been through. What are you doing to ameliorate this situation? And he said, well, well, that's basically, he said, it's not our job. What is the fuck your job, mate? <laughs> Bring these people together. It's just crazy. So that was it. You told the story of coming up with the rape joke, which your co-writer yeah. had a problem with, yeah. and then you revised it to give yeah. it context yeah. to make it work for him. Through that collaboration, do you feel like it got better? Yeah, it's much better. That's, <laughs> it's one of the things that's so interesting in working with other people. If you're not stuck on, this is my way, yeah. and you're open to those conversations, what is it that is rubbing you the wrong way? You can actually make it better. But that's the trick. It's always been, I think it's always been like doing the animation. When I got this 
job on a TV show to what it originally was, because I never studied animation other than a couple books, a little thing. Yeah. And I was on this TV show, and... This is pre-Python. Yeah, this is pre-Python, yeah. This is where I became first an animator on television before Python. And this is in London as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was called, called We Have Ways to Make You Laugh, I think it was called something. And I was there as a caricaturist, and I would do a little drawing of the guests that came on. It was a talk show, but it was, there was a lot of comedy in, involved, sketches and things. And I would do these little drawings, and they'd, oh, the camera would go in, and that's it, and we'd go on to And one of the writers and performers of the show had spent several months collecting off the radio. There was a guy named Jimmy Young, who was a DJ, who's, I suppose, what was unique about him, in between the songs, he would do these terrible connections. And they're full of puns and all, terrible stuff. But it was connecting that with that. Yeah. And this guy from the show, uh, he had collected a couple months' worth of this stuff. And nobody knew what to do with it. And I said, can I make an animated film of this stuff? And they said, go ahead. I had two weeks and 400 pounds. And the only way I could do it is cutting out other people's artwork, moving it around. And that was suddenly me, an animator on television, now well-known, wow. <laughs> and that Linda Python. Well, yeah. That's unbelievable. I know. Unbelievable. Also, the idea that it's the first comedy group, I suppose, that's a multimedia group. I suppose. That, that says, because there were great... You know, there was the David Frost show. There was... We have the, uh, this is the week it was. All the comedy shows, but they never had a guy doing these animated sequences. And that... Not as part of the group. It was like you were in the band. Yeah. No, that was it. We were a boy band. Yeah. <laughs> without a manager. It was great. Nobody was in charge. We were a completely democratic organization. And, and it, was, it was wondrous. Were you there from the inception of the group? Yep. No, because what had actually happened from this show that I'd been on with the animation started, I then did a couple bits for a show that Mike Palin, Terry Jones, and Eric Idle were doing with a couple other actors. Uh, it was a kid's show. Definitely. Then I became part of that. So it was Eric, Mike, Terry, and me. And then John Cleese and Graham. John was offered BBC do a show. And so he chose to work. I think Mike Palin has always been the connecting tissue in the yeah. group. He's the nice one. Yeah. <laughs> and we all love working with Mike. Yeah. And John, I think, would work with and Mike. And he's great. He's fantastic. <laughs> and, and that's what happened. So the four of us and, uh, and the two of them became, and we just had complete freedom. Yeah. It was at a time when there were only three television channels, BBC One, Two, and ITV. Now that's a special time. It doesn't exist anymore. So us being on the BBC, even when Louis came out sort of late at night, we gathered an audience and it grew very quickly. And that could never happen now. I think the idea of, are you considered an influencer? You're beyond an influencer. Come on, you do real things. <laughs> no, but it's the idea. There's so many people out there that just because of the choice of clothes or whatever, become an But I don't, well, fashion has never been important in my life, so that doesn't count for me. But you make music some. And that's, music to me is God's voice. Absolutely. <laughs> And it's the making of things. It's always to be important. I don't care about. I only want to make things. I it doesn't matter what it is. No. Just a vehicle for the idea. Yep. And that's what we do. But I still. And you keep claiming you you don't play in this. You don't do anything. It's true. Come on. You must. No, 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 no. I'm I'm a fan. I like it. I can 
see the way the pieces come together yeah. and I can feel where they don't go together as well as they could right. and can verbalize it clearly yeah. until we get to that place. How long did it take you to get to that place? Very quickly, because it's just ah. intuitive. It's like I Yeah, but how I do they let it. you... Uh, nobody let your me. opinion got yeah, in the way of their work. Nobody <laughs> let me. I just started. <laughs> I, I just started. I was in school, you know, I just started what? making things. Yeah. And, and then luckily, once you start, yeah. no, but luckily yeah. they were successful. Well, Had they not been always, successful, of course, we wouldn't it's be different. talking. Yeah. Well, same thing. We're on the verge of being know, unsuccessful, both of us. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> I didn't even know it could be a job, you know, it yeah. just turned into a job. How was it? You just knew a band, some guys, and you, your opinion, well, it, it they, in, they respected. The, the first thing was I was in a punk rock band, so I recorded my punk rock band. That right. was the first thing. Was Would not you play successful. Barely. Good punk rock rudimentary boom, guitar. Boom, boom, boom. Very barely. Yeah, okay. Barely. It yeah. was more, punk rock was more about the energy yeah, and course, the yeah. idea behind it yeah. than it was about the virtuosity. Yeah, exactly. And then hip hop started, and I was watching this scene come up. And the rec and the, they were already starting to be these twelve-inch vinyl records, yeah. early days of hip hop that you, you would have never heard. They were just like local things. Yeah. But those records didn't sound like what hip hop sounded like if you if you went to the hip hop club. Yeah, 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 yeah. So more like a documentarian, I started making things just as a fan of hip hop. Right. The records that were coming out didn't reflect hip hop. Right. They reflected the old values of the way people made music, and they were just having somebody rap on I mean, top of the old way. Bing Crosby rapping. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> that's what they did. So my feeling was, it's not that, it's, it's punk rock. It's yeah. essentially yeah, yeah, punk yeah, rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started making the punk rock version uh, of rap records and people liked them and then and it then went once from you, there. Yeah, that's exactly the same with me, doing some animation, somebody liked it, they gave me another thing. Yeah. People like that, you get another one. Yeah. No training, no. no. And every skills, step yeah. of the way, yeah. when I would do something different than what I did before, because yeah. you don't do the same thing over yeah, yeah, and over yeah. again, uh. I was told that's insane, you can't do yep. it, terrible idea, are you crazy, you know, you're the rap guy, how could you make a heavy metal record, and then you have a successful heavy metal record, it's like, you're the rap and metal guy, how could you ever record with country <laughs> artists? You know, every step yeah, of the way is just these barriers of small thinking. But this is like me going to the studios, you know, after time bandits in Brazil, all that, well, you go in there and they, they oh, I love, as a kid, I time bandits has changed my life. Brazil's insane. And, I'm, and, and I've got the new idea. Yeah. Just, yes, but this new thing you're talking about, and it's been like that 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It doesn't change. No. Those people stay the same. Yes. We keep shifting. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, yes. It's, I think both of us like things that are at least edgy, if not yeah, offensive. Yeah. yeah. That also plays a, yeah. a role in the resistance. See, I keep, my problem is I don't know what the boundaries of humor are, so I keep going to well, I don't over think the they edge are. of the cliff. Yeah, I, I don't uh, know that there are. I know. I, you know but uh, people, we're living in a time where people take offense before anything else. They're waiting to take offense. They really yeah. are at a time like that. And it's not actually the people that are being protected from the offenders. It's the activists who are in between, because I know too many people who just are quietly getting on with their own life being who they want to be. Yeah. No problem. And I think some of these activists, are, they're beating a drum for them, their sake. Yeah. It started years ago when film, there was a first showing of it, and these actors came to, up there, and they announced themselves first as an activist, not an actor. What the fuck are you talking about? 
I mean, that's, it's just a virtual signaling. Virtual signaling is all it is. I'm on the right side, doing the right thing. For, and I cannot stand when you, it's what is happening now. It's like now, if you're not on their side, you're phobic. Yeah. And I say, I'm a phobe-phobe. That's <laughs> what it is. Is a cheap laugh as good as a clever laugh? <laughs> not really. But it doesn't mean one doesn't go with the cheap laugh. Yeah. I mean, we're desperate people. <laughs> people try to make people laugh, whichever it is. It's wonderful when you actually get a sublime laugh, something that's truly wonderful. And my favorite moment is in Life of Brian when the whole crowd, when Brian says, you're all individuals, the whole crowd shouts out, we're all individuals, and one voice speaks up, I'm not. <laughs> that is sublime. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. How involved are you in the writing of the of the projects you do? Well, I don't with Python. I didn't really write. I did uh, animation. No, in the movies. No, the movies. Yeah, I'm always involved. I always work with somebody who is much better at character and dialogue than I am because I'm um, the big ideas, the shapes, this that, uh, this kind of scene. That is what I do. Mm -hmm. And then I'm lucky enough to work with more talented people who can put the words in the character's mouth. Yeah. I sometimes put words, but I just know, in the case of Time Bass, Mike Palin, he's better than I am. So mm. why should I even be trying to compete? I will write something and he'll rewrite it, making it better, that's all. Often do the actors write something better? Is that a typical thing? Sometimes, yes. I mean, so many actors are really smart. They're not given credit for being as smart as they are. And they're funny when they're given a chance. And yes, they'll come up with a better line. It's more true to the character even. I mean, when we did Fisher King, Robin Williams, of course. How do you stop Robin? He just went for it all the time because he actually had that feeling people are watching this movie because they're fans and they want to see what Robin Williams does. And I had cast Jeff Bridges not only was he a brilliant actor, but he was the anchor that kept Robin and me on the ground. And so at any day in a scene, Robin would say, yeah, let me do this one. And I'd say, okay, rather than fighting, there was no point in fighting because that's just putting a cap on the pressure that's going to explode. So go for it, Rob. And out of his um, ad-libbing, there would be moments, a couple moments really good. So I'd say, keep those in. Now, keep those, but get back to the script. And that's how it worked. So... That's what I do. How did the Python TV shows get put together? Well, we worked in different combinations. John Cleese, Graham Chapman worked together. Mike Penn and Terry Jones worked together. Eric Heidel and I worked on our own. We were, and I didn't do what the others did. Yeah. They were much better at words than I, they're much better performers. So I was, in many ways, I had the most freedom of anybody because everything was very d democratic. We when all the material would come in after everybody had been separated doing their work, then we'd come in and we'd vote on which stays in the show and what doesn't. And they never knew what I was doing. They couldn't, they couldn't really explain anything. I couldn't explain what I was doing. Yeah. It was only on the day of the show that I would turn up with the film of what I had done. And it worked. That's what I think has always been to me the miracle. This monosyllabic Minnesota farm boy turns up in England with all these Cambridge and Oxford educated Brits. And somehow we shared the same sense of humor. It just came out in different ways, mine visually and theirs verbally. Yeah. Did they ever write material based on them all being English 
where you didn't understand the joke, or it was if you didn't grow up there, you wouldn't have understood it. No, I always did. I, I don't. From a very early age, I became an Anglophile mm -hmm. somehow. I mean, there was the Goon Show and things that were turning up on on disc in America, uh -huh. and I just loved the humor. And it was it was kind of like even with Beatles lyrics, I didn't know what Penny Lane was. It yeah. didn't matter. Yeah. I sensed what it was about, and I loved the fact that eventually I could find out what these things were in their lives, but I wasn't really interested. It was poetry to me. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what the, the rest of the Pythons were doing. Yeah. How were the order, let's say there were a dozen skits in an episode, would you be the one to put them in order? How would it get assembled and how would the animations connect them? Well, very early on, we decided not to do punchlines because we'd seen so many TV comedy shows and there'd be this wonderful material, great characterizations, and then they'd have to end with a zinger. And the zingers were never as good as what we'd experienced before. So we said, no punchlines. So what would happen as the sketches were written and, and as they became assembled as we worked them out, it would just basically say, Ed Gilliam takes over from here before the punchline and gets us to there. That's all it was. And I, I was the freest of all. Wow. And I just did it. And... And I could never explain what I was actually doing. I, sometimes I had, oh, I could say, it's going to be like this. Most of the times, I would just sit at home late at night, because when we were doing the shows, I would probably have two all-nighters a week. Yeah. So my brain was just free, floating around, and the pieces of paper on my desk would start informing me what we were doing. And things, that's how it was. And I... Uh, that's why when I look back at some of the shows, I can't believe I was the guy doing that because it seems, how did I ever come up with that ridiculous idea or brilliant idea, whatever it was? And it worked because this one foreign element in the group became very much the signature of the part of the signature. Oh, absolutely. Part. Yeah. Absolutely. Again, it made it modern. It, yeah. it was different than any other thing we'd seen before because the animation, it wasn't just the intro and the outro, it was the connective tissue of the whole episode. It, 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 the connective tissue really came from one animation I did for this children's show that Mike, Terry, and Eric were involved. And it was just a stream of consciousness. And Terry Jones loved that. He says, that's how we've got to do the show, as this weird kind of stream of consciousness. Things, unrelated things, somehow are connected in some way. And we flowed through it. And I was the connecting tissue. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk through each of the stages of making a film quickly. First is the idea. Do you have lots of ideas? And how do you know which is the one to pursue? I don't know. I really don't know the process, how one thing becomes the thing I'm trying to say. I mean, the current thing I'm working on, I was here in Umbria on my own for the first time in many years. My wife's not here, my children not here. And I was sitting in my house and I suddenly gained confidence. There was nobody to say what an idiot I was, what a complete waste of time I was. It was the weirdest thing. And suddenly my brain just started dancing and out of this, okay, let's destroy humanity. It's a good start. Okay. <laughs> and then work out why yeah. and how you avoid ultimately doing it is what yeah. happened. Is it helpful to have someone to say, stop thinking about that, you're an idiot? Is that a good... Uh... Well, obviously not, because my wife does that all the time. <laughs> No, but having that barrier could also, you'll dig in when you dig in and you won't dig in when it's less important. It could also be like a filter. 
That, well, that's very important. Usually it's the budget that is the filter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the time and cost becomes a thing. But there is, I, that's why I like working with a co-writer, somebody mm-hmm. else who will question why yeah. that's a good idea. Then I've got to either defend it or not. Describe the writing process. From the first day you show up, you have an idea of what you want to do. What happens? Well, I've kind of written a story first. Okay. This is the story I'm trying to tell. Is it like three pages? Or? Could be. In the case of Brazil, it was 94. Okay. And most of it was thrown out. Okay. <laughs> but you start. Yeah. There's, There's the something. You come there in with something. something. And now, what do you think? Well, that's really stupid. And why that? Asking the question is, why are you doing that? How could you justify having that horrible idea? Yeah. You put things in context and how a script is about... When you re- send a script to the studio, they'll always say, oh, this doesn't work, that doesn't work. And they're always wrong because what isn't working is something that takes place in the script 15 minutes before. Yeah. You have to set the scene for that thing down yes. there. And that's how it works. And they don't, studios don't understand this simple thing. In music, is it, it must be Latin music. If you set a chord or in the mix, you'd be doing something and plant suddenly a major chord in the middle of minors. And that sort of hangs in the air. And then you develop it later on. I don't know if it works that way. No, we always make either a demo in advance or we don't show it to anyone until it's the finished version. But it's working on a much smaller scale. It's that's, a couple of people. Yeah. It's not 100 people on a set. And that's the difference. And it's like, the problem with films, you've got to put it in a written form. But the film is not about the written form. Well, that says the words, but it's the imagery and what the imagery is, expand, is expanding from the, 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 the words. So somebody's saying that this words, the, whatever he's saying, in one location, you put them in a different location, it means something completely different possibly. Yeah. And until the film has been shot, and the film, you shoot and you're making mistakes every day, and then you're trying to fix them, and time and budget are the t- determiners, ultimately, of what you've made. And I rail against, oh, I don't have time to do that, but then, it makes me angry, which gets the adrenaline going. And the adrenaline comes up with clever ideas just to fuck them, basically. <laughs> it really is. That happened on Munchausen. We had a schedule of 21 weeks. In the sixth week... That's a long time. That's a, yeah, but this, this is what often they are. <laughs> Brazil was nine months. Wow. From beginning to end of shooting. Wow. Yeah, I know. You have to be young to do that. Yeah, yeah. But so Munchausen, we had the thing... And all the budget, all the money was gone in the sixth week of a 21-week shoot. And then the bond company, the insurers come in and say, well, you can't do this, you can't do this. And they all said, the Baron cannot go to the moon because what was in the script, the Baron and his friends go to the moon and on the moon is a king and queen and there's 2,000 people, all who during the lunar eclipse, their heads detach from their bodies and may or may not get back to the right body. And the king of the moon of these 2,000 people is Sean Connery. Now, they said you can't go to the moon. And I said, hold on, the Baron will go to the moon. My first idea was the film would be going along and we reached the point when they arrive at the moon and basically we walk into the office with me and my co-writer and we just are reading the script. Yeah, we're going to the moon, fuck you, was my first reaction. And then it was Eric Idle who suggested maybe Robin Williams could play the king of the moon. And I thought, whoa, now we're in a different world here. And we didn't have the money for 2,000 people. And it was down basically to two people on the moon. I removed three zeros. <laughs> and, and Sean Connery said, 
there's not much point of me being king of two people. <laughs> and so he was gone. And that's how Sean went before Robin appeared. And then Robin appeared, and we did it with two people on the moon. So much of the moon sequence was Robin ad-libbing. There's a lot of stuff there that was not scripted. He was on great form, and we had a wonderful time. If five different great directors had one of the scripts that you start from, how different would those five movies be? They'd probably be better. Between the five, though. I don't know, because that's what's, it's always intrigued me. What you're asking is something I've always wanted to know. The, you, here's a script handed to five different well-known directors. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. And they would be five different films. Yeah. I mean, mine always have sort of twisted endings. Spielberg doesn't do that. Spielberg is the Norman Rockwell of cinema. He makes warm, cuddly films. I don't. I'm trying to shock people into looking at things in new ways, surprise them. You know, somebody uh, like uh, Michael Bay it would be all action. <laughs> Big technological things. We all have different skills. Who, who do you think of as peers? Cohen brothers. Great. I love the Coens. Great. I think they're the only ones really out there still expanding the boundaries of what you can get away with. And getting away with is, is the key to everything. How many times can you get away with murder? <laughs> How do you think we parse surreal material? Is it intellectual or is it something else? I don't think in that sense. I just react. It's really weird. I can't explain what surrealism is. But all I know is it makes me see the world in ways I haven't imagined. It's it's like the brain is all about trying to make sense of things, is what the brain. So you put two completely conflicting ideas in front of the brain, and it, it starts working overtime trying to make sense. And you may never make sense of it, but it gets your brain active and struggling. And that, to me, is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and that juxtaposition can create a feeling in the viewer uh-huh. where they don't know why, but I feel this. And it's almost impossible to explain why I'm feeling this or exactly even what the feeling is. It's just getting neurons buzzing around. <laughs> yeah. It's a cheap drug, surrealism. <laughs> How important is it for the audience to understand what they're seeing? To me, I'm trying to communicate to an audience. I want to tell a story. I want to bring them along with me. And I want to play with them while we're going there. So it is important. At the end of the film, I don't care if what you saw was a different film than the one I thought I made. I don't care. But you saw a film, and it made sense to you. When we finished 12 Monkeys, there was some woman who suddenly got my email, and she had worked out a whole cosmic religious film there. The Twelve Monkeys, The Twelve Disciples, uh, James Cole, um, Bruce Willis's character, J.C., Jesus Christ. And it was elaborate and it was totally convincing that this is what we had done. It is not at all what we did, <laughs> but it's what she made out of what we had done. Yeah. I thought it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, we can never know how someone else receives something. Have you ever come back to something and had an insight about it that you didn't know for years? Well, with Time Bandits, recently I've heard a lot of people who said when they were kids they were hor- frightened. They thought it was a horror film. I said, no, why are they talking about it? It wasn't meant as a horror film. It was just a good adventure. So I don't know if they really felt that then or they have now changed because as the world has changed, we've become much more delicate that something as challenging. For me, Time Bandits was interesting. It was a kid's film and it was an adult. It was for all ages. 
And what happened at the end, because there was a big fight with me and Dennis O'Brien, the producer, about the ending, the parents being blown up because they're not listening to their son. And I said, this is what the film is about. Parents, listen to your children. They're often wiser. And what happened at the end, the boys came out of the film saying, yeah, no problem. Kevin's on his own without his parents. We can handle it. The girls came out like mothers. I mean, they were so worried about what happened. So I, right from the very beginning, there was this distinction between the young boys and the young girls. The boys were full of testosterone. Wow, we can do it. Parents, fuck that. The girls were very concerned about the boy. And I thought that's fantastic. That made sense to me, those very different views. That's all. You described the initial factions, I'll say, within Python. Did those factions remain the same throughout the duration? No, it was weird because we were all learning from each other. We were changing in different ways. I was picking up things from them. They were picking up things. We all, that's what, it was such a good time because we had to keep producing these shows, films. We were just clicking. We didn't have time to intellectualize what we were doing. We were just doing it because it came out and we, we made each other laugh. That was it. And the fact that it reached a larger audience was a delight. And, but we all became, I was finding, I was writing things that were more like something Eric was doing and he was picking up things from John and Mike. It was, it was a wonderful experience, just working like that, mixing, matching. Why did it only last uh, the four seasons? It was enough. I think the sense was we weren't being original anymore. We wanted to be original and we were becoming repetitive. I see. And very successful, thank you very much. Yeah. But that was not the purpose of what we were trying to do. Yeah. Have you ever had a job on a movie besides directing the movie? Oh yeah. Began very early on when I was in New York working you know, for two dollars less than the doll. And I got a job working for free in a little stop motion action uh, studio, a guy named Ted Nemeth. He did dancing cigarette packs, it's all for commercials. And his wife was a director and she was directing her version of Finnegan's Wake. And I was on there as just you know, a nobody to help out. And I remember one day they were setting up a shot in this bar at closing time and the circular table had upturned chairs. So it looked like a crown. And they were trying to do this shot with the camera and all. And I that's just wrong. What they're doing is never going to achieve what they're trying to do. And I said to the director, wait, that's not going to work. Because I, I, then, in particular, I had a really good spatial sense about things, how they really didn't work. And I said, that ain't going to work. What you need to do is, and they paid no attention to me. And I said, good night. And that was the end. I walked off the set. And it was the end. <laughs> I, I may be the lowest of the low, but ideas I have. Yeah. And if you can't be bothered to listen, and that has been my way on sets ever since because I listen to people. I don't care who they are and I try to make sure that everybody can speak to me. I try to break down the hierarchy. When we were doing Munchausen, it was very funny, in Italy, Catholic country, the Peppino Rotuno, the cinematographer, brilliant, brilliant man. Now, his English was not great. And I had an assistant who was translating. He didn't like because he had done a Bob Fosse movie and thought his English was great. It wasn't. And I said, Pepino, it's not, you're not the problem. My English isn't very good is the problem. <laughs> and, and, and I said, and it wouldn't stop. And it became more and more difficult. I said, you're a Catholic. I'm a Protestant. As a Catholic, you have God, the Pope, and then you. 
and I'm in a pro I'm a Protestant. Anybody can speak directly to God. <laughs> I am God, and I I don't want a pope, which Papito, you are. I want them all to speak to me, not to come through you to speak to me. And that was my my big fight. <laughs> Do you remember the uh, Broadway show? The, which one? The Monty Python. Broadway? Oh yeah, that whatever that was on Broadway. No, 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 no. The original with the original cast. Yeah. I saw it when I was you know I don't know. It was probably. 12 years old, 15 right. years yeah, old. Yeah. And it was, I still remember, mind-blowing. And one of the things I remember the most was the giant hand that came down onto the stage just because it was such a visual, yeah. unexpected in a more yeah, yeah, straight yeah, yeah, performance yeah, yeah. situation. I, I don't have really any great memory of it all. It was just fun being on stage and being applauded. Yeah. And my biggest memory is one of the nights we finished the show with a lumberjack song, and George Harrison was there, and Harry Nilsson was there, and we all take the bow. And as the curtain is coming down, Harry steps forward upstage to the edge of the stage over the, the orchestra pit, and some fan reaches up to shake his hand and pulls him into the orchestra pit. <laughs> and last we saw was Harry's feet in the air as he disappeared. And that's my memory of the shows. <laughs> Are you superstitious? Not really. I try to be because it's more interesting. <laughs> but I'm not very good at convincing myself. But I look for signs. I'm always looking for signs. And at a certain point, certain things are happening. And that's forming my, my, my view of what is going on. If I've fallen down that day, I crashed my car the next day, my, my dog was sick, that I think something... The, the, the reverberations are not good. The energy is not good. Something is wrong. I will believe that, but I don't understand any more than that. Yeah. What did you believe when you were young that you don't believe anymore? God is omnipotent. <laughs> and it's worth begging down and bowing to him. And you, if you pray, you will get your, the returns you're hoping for. I think nature is what it is. It's extraordinary. It's brutal. It's wonderful but it doesn't respond, except I do actually believe there's energy out there. If you somehow can feel it and sense of the world, you might be more in tune and have better luck than if you're fighting that. That's all it's about. I don't know. God will just have to get on his own without me, <laughs> praying for Have him. you ever made a creative choice because you imagine the audience would prefer it instead of what you prefer? I've never actually done that. <laughs> That's a weird one. That's If there's enough of them and enough in the audience that are really smart, people I admire or respect, and they say I'm wrong, I listen. Wow. But as a general thing, my assumption is the audience is unknowable, and it's much larger than studio executives thinks it is. So if the current thinking is all of this, I will go and feed the other bit of thinking and see just how big it is. Almost everything I do is trying to find out the edge of civilization, you yeah. could say. Yeah. Did you watch TV as a kid? Not much. I grew up on radio because mm. we didn't have TV until I was like 13. And radio was wonderful because you have to do all the work. You have to, the costumes, everything is set. It's like reading a book. Same thing. You do the work. And I'm convinced it was books and radio that developed my visual sense. Simple as that. Because... Those muscles need exercise. Tell me about the place you grew up in. It was Medicine Lake outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we were on a little hill, dirt road out there. Uh, a house that had been a summer cottage 
And my dad, he was a carpenter. My mother was a virgin also. So, you know, you know where this goes. <laughs> and it's, no, anyway, my dad was a carpenter and he restored this little, little suburb shack into a house that we grew up in. And for the first 10 years of my life, the toilet was at the end of the garden in a, in a biffy, it was called. The biffy was what we called it, outdoor loo. And I mean, this is my memories are the snow in the winter, 40 degrees below zero. And it was just beautiful and freezing and having to go and, uh, out and spend an hour in the, the biffy. You'd go out in your, your, uh, your shoes and a bathrobe, that's all. And I have no memory of how freezing cold that must have been because it was normal. And the things that weren't normal in my life was the radio. Let's pretend it was a show. There was the fat man, and there was, there was uh, the shadow, Lamont Crowdson, only the shadow knows. And so you lift these wonderful voices, the timbre of the voice, the sound, and the footsteps, the sound effects, and your brain is inventing all the visuals. And that was to be, there was also Johnny Lujak. Johnny Lujak was a, a quarterback for Notre Dame University, a Catholic quarterback. <laughs> I thought, this is fast. There were the Hardy Boys as well, who were, you know, boy detectives. Yeah. These were the things I used to listen to. That's it. How would you describe your taste? My taste? I don't have any taste. I'm happy when I get a hot pepper. I'm happy when I get a particularly sweet things. I want the whole range of possibilities <laughs> bombarding my palate. On the other hand, I'll just drink Coca-Cola. And artistically the same? Yeah. I don't want to define it. I want, I'm greedy. That's what I, I'm basically very greedy. <laughs> I want it all. Quentin tells a story of you uh, mentoring him at Sundance before his first movie. Do you have any memory of that? Oh, I do. Tell me about no, that. No, because what they did at Sundance, they'd bring in a group of, quote, professionals, and they're the young aspiring ones there. And my group was Stanley Donnan. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. And so Stanley Donnan, me, and Volker Schlaudorf, who had directed the Tin Drum, great German director, and we had all these young hopefuls in there, and this script turned up. And it was Reservoir Dogs. And I read it, I was utterly blown away by the, just the outrageousness of it, the boldness, the complete commitment that Quentin was. And, I, and neither Stanley or Volkers, they didn't understand this script. I said, this is great, you've got to understand this. And I met Quentin. Now, the previous group of professionals, because he overlapped by one week, the previous group had shat all over him. Wow. They were just completely unresponsive, unhelpful. And I said... Quentin, this is great. And he had actually shot a scene while he was there at Sundance with Tim Roth, a scene that ultimately uh, Harvey um, Cartel did the scene. And he's talking to himself in the mirror. And Kevin had 10 different angles on this scene. He said, you don't need all that, kid. Just do it simply and directly. And I said, but your work is great. And apparently that's all it took. Uh, it gave him a little bolt of confidence. And so I get a credit on Reservoir Talks. Wow. He speaks really highly of it. He talks about it as like a pivotal moment. And, well, that's it, because he had been shat upon. And confidence is such a delicate thing. It's so easy to make somebody unconfident, which they had. And I just said, this is fucking wonderful. Go for it. And I said, listen, don't try to do everything. Surround yourself with good, talented people that you respect. Listen to them. That's it. Yeah. 
Did you stop doing animation when we stopped seeing it from you, or have you done any animation since? When I stopped, I stopped. <laughs> okay. I think enough of you decided you had had enough of me. <laughs> no, I just, I got to do what I had always wanted to do, direct movies. Yeah. And that was Holy Grail, and off we went. How would you describe each of the Python members? John is the tallest, the most strange, in some ways the most intellectual, but he doesn't understand humanity. And his, his complication, I think, is that he generally feels he needs to be in control of the world around him. So he surrounds himself with a lot of professionals, but he's never yet to control it. And that's his great sense, his brilliance is, and Faulty Towers is a perfect example of it, a man trying to control this world and failing. And John is at his best when he's like that. So he doesn't understand me because I'm very instinctive. I don't intellectualize. So we're at the opposite ends of the yes. place. And in between, Mike Palin is not just the nicest person to the group. He's also, I think, he's the best actor. I think he's brilliant. His sense of comedy, his sense of character is so honest and brilliantly funny. And a great writer. And he teamed with Terry Jones. It's interesting because Terry was a bit like me, a bit monomaniacal. We be believe we're right. <laughs> but he's, Terry was Welsh, which makes him feel even more that he's right because he's oppressed by the English. <laughs> but he's, Terry was passionate, wildly passionate, and exciting because of that. Eric is the cleverest in many ways because he can dance. He's the tap dancer. He can dance with words, music. He, in some sense, he knitted much of the group together because what he did was uh, taking what another member of the group did and found his way to knit it in, in there. And he, unfortunately, is the successful, famous python in Hollywood. So he bears the brunt and the, both the fame and the pain of being a well-known comedian. And Graham Chapman was from another planet. <laughs> Graham was just strange. He was a wonderful balance to John, who is so precise and intellectual and argumentative. I can never words, which is the right brain and the left brain? Is the right brain more open? One of the half the brains is, is the, the rigorous one, the language, oh, mathematics. John is that. I'm the opposite, and Terry Jones was the opposite as well. But Graham was from kind of an another planet. He was also the only gay python. That was his, his great claim to fame. So when the, a lot of the, the gay rights began, he became very active and very funny and outraged. And Graham, I never knew who he was, but he was there with us all the time, coming up with an odd word, an idea that just popped out of some other cosmos, and it became a connecting bit that would work. So the chemical combination of the six of us I think was totally unique. Individually, we're well, whatever we are, but chemically, together, we were just, can I say the word brilliant? I yeah, think we were. <laughs> I think you can. W were there ego clashes? Always. <laughs> yeah. You, here, How would that had, get resolved? How would well, that get resolved? It's because, okay, there's six egos at work there. All right, six talented people with different skills. And there would be huge battles, but somehow democracy won. Yeah. And there was, the basis of all the differences was a deep respect for each of us, for each other. That was it. We completely disagreed with the other guy, but I respected him and his talent. So you couldn't dismiss anybody. 
and it, it just worked. Big battles occurred. And now it's, it's, it's sad because we've all gone our separate ways. And everybody's done reasonably well, but it's, it's not the joy, the thrill that it was when we were a multicellular creature. <laughs> when you speak to any of them, is the vibe good? We just, we get, we, we're, we're fighting over all sorts of very oh, pathetic things. Yeah. But when you're old and out of work, what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> Did you design the album covers, the matching tie and handkerchief? Yeah, that was, that was fun. Yeah. And also the three-sided record was yes. my idea. Oh, that's so cool. It is. And I it's was so, so cool. happy. It's the first, it's the, I think it's the only time I've ever experienced that. I mean, because we, of course. How did you get the idea? I don't know why. I just, I was watching how it works. So why can't, I mean, spirals. I've always loved spirals. Yeah. Uh, well, you have two spirals, one just inside the other. They go around together. So where the needle drops, you don't know what spiral you're going to be on. And we did it. And it worked. And I love the fact that nobody knew we had done it. Yeah. So at the beginning, people say, oh, you got to hear this, this wonderful sketch. And it wouldn't come up. Another sketch. <laughs> that was wonderful. So cool. Yeah, random. What you yeah. got was random. And that's what was... I mean, it was so much fun being Python back then because there was such a fan base and there was enough money to do what we wanted to do. That was yeah. a good thing. So, Was it huge out of the box? Like people refer to Python as the Beatles of comedy, but the Beatles, the explosion was immediate. Yeah. Was that the case with Python too? It was kind of, because again, it was this period where there were only three channels in, in Britain. Yeah. BBC One, BBC Two, and ITV. And we were BBC One. When the show, and we were given the free hand, that's, the organization was a very, I wouldn't say laissez-faire organization, but it allowed the people in charge to make choices without having to, it wasn't committee work. Yep. And so John Cleese was wanted by the BBC to do a program, and so he brought in his five friends, and they said, okay, you got, I think it was seven shows we were given, go make seven shows. We'll see how it works out. And I think all I remember is after the fourth show, because when it started, the BBC thought Monty Python's flying circus. Oh, it's a circus. And of course, it wasn't a circus in the way they thought of circus. And the first couple of shows where nobody knew what the fuck this was. It was just, what is this? But it caught on very quickly. And it was that because you only had three choices on a Sunday night. And we were the one, the most interesting choice available. So they stumbled off and very quickly we became hot. But the, the funny thing is, as we were rising very quickly on the fourth show, we were taken off and replaced by the Horse of the Year show, which is an annual event where people riding their beautiful horses over this, that, and the other thing. And the funny thing about it, we were taken off, and yet, during one of the exercises of the horses, they played the John Sousa march that we had outward. And so there was no way of stopping Python. We were just spewing. And then Nancy Lewis was this woman who was a PR lady for Buddha Records in America. And she got wind of Python. She is responsible for bringing Python to America. She's not credited anywhere, which is a crime against Nancy. But she got a guy named Ron DeVilliers from Texas. He was working one of the TV channels there. And it turned out that the TV channel he was working for, the boss man, was Owen Wilson's father. And they had to gather together 11 pay-per-view channels, whatever they were, or, and they got it. And Ron got it, 
And off we went, and we hit it right from the beginning. Bam! I think it was after the first couple shows, I think in Des Moines, Iowa, or somewhere in the Midwest, they pulled the show off. And a couple thousand people were demonstrating on the street to get the show back on. It was, like, was it pulled boom. off because of uh, it was being censored or banned? I have no or? idea. No idea. I suppose the big break was when we were on national public NPR. Yeah. That's where we were. And I love. I just love the oh, PBS in the US. yeah, it was PBS, PBS. What it was called, yeah. yeah. And the fact there were no commercials. Yes. The show went out as we made it. Yes. And then uh, we were preparing to do the Python New York show, and ABC TV had gotten very excited about the show, and a guy whose name I've forgotten had decided ABC would take it. All we had to do was change, edit the show. This done, done. So they did their bowdlerized version of the show, and. It was, we were very late in waking up to the fact that the show was going to go out with all these ridiculous cuts in it. And we took them to court. And the court case was in New York, the big federal building there where um, the previous attorney general, John, uh, who was under Nixon, had been held in court. And we were there, ABC versus Python. And Mike Palin and I were the witnesses for Python. Wow. And this is a huge building, 40-foot high ceilings, all wow. oak paneled. There's the judge on his high thing. And Mike and I had our individual turns in the witness box. It was quite wonderful. Now, the stupid things uh, about the ABC lawyer, they were saying it was all a publicity stunt for the upcoming New York show, which it wasn't. No. And, and the fact we had been so long after the come out, it was only a purely a publicity style. It wasn't. We just were very slow at thinking about legal. We just didn't think about this. Yeah. So we're up there. Now, the moment when they, ABC, lost was very simple. We sit in the jury box, the judge and Mike and I on either side of him and the ABC lawyers. And they showed our uncut versions first. And everybody laughed, wonderful. And then they showed the Bowdlerized version. Nobody laughed because it's old material. It wasn't as funny. And that's how stupid the ABC lawyer was. He didn't understand comedy. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> we, we blocked it going out. We didn't win originally. Took more appeals, but it stopped ABC. Because ABC didn't understand. Because they loved the show. And they were just trying to make it available for more people, so we'd be loved by more people. We didn't care about more people, we just wanted it to go out the way we made it, yeah. and we would suffer if it didn't. And in the end, the appeals went back and forth. Eventually, the BBC, who had been central to selling it off to ABC, lost, and we own the shows. Wow, incredible. Happy ending. Isn't that a, it is a happy, happy ending. ending. Yeah. Happy ending. At what point, in the success, did you realize this is really having impact? Like it's not regular success because yeah, yeah, it's something yeah. different. Yeah. I think it was the New York shows that really kind of made a live audience was there. And they were trying to leave at the end. You know, they were banging at the gates. It was wow. like if that kind of frenzy, which was what the Beatles, I mean, yeah. a smaller version yes. of it. But for us, it was like yeah. gigantic. And this was already after the show was was yeah. done. The, yeah, the TV show was finished. I mean, it was. We knew we had succeeded. We knew yeah. it was working, but it wasn't a first-hand experience. Yeah. When you actually get mobbed, then you're on a different level. <laughs> what was the ratio of the skits filmed to the ones that made it into the show? I don't know. I, 
I, I, let's say, three quarters got in. And quarter, I mean, the quality of writing was really good. It was the business of trying to organize which sketches would go in that show and how we could relate them, if any way. And so some good things were just lost because there wasn't a way of fitting them in as far as we were concerned, yeah. Any inspirations from when you were young? I tried to be a magician. My dad built me a beautiful a stall to work from behind. And I would try to do my magic tricks to, you know, to impress the local kids. And I always fucked them up. So I became known as Terry the Clown because my failures made them laugh. Yeah. I was a failed magician, but a pretty decent clown. <laughs> it's what you all, anybody involved in comedy or even I'm, I'm sure in music is where the guys that were maybe less popular at school. Yeah. And how do, you, how do you get the girls to look at you? How do you get people to notice you're interesting? So comedy is the best thing. And especially if you have to be smaller than the other guys who would like to beat the shit out of you. So you better get funny quickly. That's how you survive. It's survival techniques is what brings comedians alive, I think. <laughs> do you remember how, and now for something completely different came about? No, I don't. That's what's wonderful. With, as you get older, great holes in your memory appear. Yeah. You're the Swiss tree, cheese of memory is what it got up there. And certain things stick and other things don't. And what normally sticks are the bad things because they're the most shocking, the most, I suppose you'd say, traumatic. Yes. But it's, they don't kill you. Yeah. I think, I think you know, Nietzsche is right. You know, humor, failed humor makes you strong, right? Yeah. He didn't say it quite like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's... It is the knocks that are important. Yeah. The knocks are because you've got to keep picking. And that's what, I mean, listen, that's one reason Quixote is such an important character to me. It's about failure. He gets knocked down because his view of the world is noble and beautiful. The real world kicks him in the ass every time he's down on the ground, he's flat. But he gets up again and goes off trying to live this in this world of nobility, which doesn't really exist. That is inspiring. Failure is his ability to constantly get up again is to me a great inspiration. I wish poor people appreciated that. <laughs> is making things now as fun for you and interesting as it's always been? Just more difficult. <laughs> I want it to be fun. Yes, because I know when I get into it, whether writing something or trying to make it or what I really do, my real job is making birthday cards for my family. Beautiful. And each birthday comes along, it's a specific age, and I've got to come up with an idea that is about whatever is going on in their life at that age. And it's really hard work, and I spend a lot of time thinking, and then suddenly the idea is, when the idea, I got it, now, now I've got to do it. And then I realized I haven't been spending what I should have been doing in all the time up to that practicing my drawing skills and suddenly I can't draw properly anymore. So each thing is a battle, but at the end of it, I've done something. I've got all these birthday cards, Valentine's cards for my wife, even our anniversary cards. That's what I do. That's my art these days. And is it, I imagine the, the cracking the code of the card is every bit as exciting as putting together a Python episode. It's like, all of that. you yeah. get to make something and you get to have that, yep. aha, look, there it is. But that's it, is aha. It's always, is that Archimedes, Eureka? Yeah. It's a Eureka moment, whatever. It, and an idea, when a good idea hits you, 
it feels so brilliant because I don't even know where it came from. Yes. Somewhere in the psyche, deep down in yes. the bowels, maybe it's, I don't know, it comes out of my ass as far as I know. I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure and I feel like we will There's be lifelong friends. Yeah, we are now. <laughs> and we it. met another guy who talks out of his ass. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, sir. Great. All it's right. been a joy. Thank you. Same. <laughs>